Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a better place. I'm here once again with Alex Tabarrok, the professor of economics at George Mason University. This is part two of our series covering everything from why are the prices so damn high to now a fascinating concept called dominant assurance contracts, which was invented by or coined by uh, by Alex himself. Okay, that's really jargony, though. I mean, I say dominant assurance contracts. Maybe you're tempted just to fall asleep as you as you listen to this <laughs> unfamiliar title. We'll parse it a bit more here in a second. But a dominant insurance contract, in a sense, is like a legal technology or device, in a sense. I mean, it's no different from, in that regard, than like fee simple property, a, a concept invented in the 13th century, or limited liability corporations in the 19th century. Now, dominant insurance contracts in the 1990s. These are legal innovations or technologies in the sense of being recipes of knowledge, which have to be invented, have to be thought of just as much as tangible tech, like combustion engines and phones. And it's hard to imagine the hockey stick-shaped boom in modern capitalist prosperity without these recipes of knowledge. So let's start with basics. Before we get to dominant assurance contracts, Alex, economists talk a lot about public goods versus, I guess, private goods. What are public goods? So a public good is sort of defined as a good which is a non-rival and non-excludable. So what does that mean? My, my favorite example is of a public good is asteroid deflection. Uh, you know, just a few <laughs> weeks ago, uh, an asteroid barely missed uh, the world. Um, it could have destroyed an entire city. Um, asteroid deflection or destruction would be a public good because if someone were to go and to, were to deflect the asteroid from hitting the Earth, Everyone would benefit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's yeah. non-rival because if uh, I have an apple and I give it to you, I lose the apple. But if I deflect the asteroid, we both get the benefits of deflecting the asteroid. So that means it's it's non-rivalable. A- anyone in the world uh, can benefit. Uh, and the second, it's non-excludable. This means that I can't make you pay. Uh, uh, the, I, I could make by forcing you, but I, I can't exclude you from benefiting from the asteroid deflection if you don't pay. Mm-hmm. Right. So I could say, listen, uh, we, got, we need to get together and, uh, nobody wants to die from, uh, this asteroid. We don't want to be the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, get together and put some money, uh, in a pool and then we will be able to save our planet. Unfortunately. Many people are going to think, you know, I'll let the other guys put their (laughs) money in the pool. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll buy some jeans instead, right? Right. Because uh, the jeans are a private good. I get the benefit of that. If I contribute to the asteroid, right, then probably enough other people are going to contribute anyway Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that the deflection is going to happen anyway. And if not enough other people contribute, then my money is just kind of wasted. Um, so there's an incentive to free ride. Mm. Uh, so public goods are uh, one of the classic so-called market failures, right? That even though deflecting the asteroid might be very valuable, it's going to be tough to produce that in a market. And therefore, you need state coercion. We're going to make everyone contribute via taxation, police power, et cetera. I mean, that, that's the idea. The state helps mitigate the free rider problem in the public goods model. 
Exactly. One of the reasons why um, I like the asteroid example, which Tyler and I use in our uh, textbook, Modern Principles of Economics, one of the reasons I like it is, of course, the state fails here as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they can't get taxes from everyone. They try. Yeah. yeah. Well, but in actual point and in actual point of fact, we don't spend a lot of money. (laughs) This is a good, which is a public good, and I Mm. would like to see it actually funded. Mm -hmm. But the government does not, you know, does not actually spend a lot of money on deflecting assets. So it's a it's a it's a it's a public good where we have market failure and government failure. Oh, interesting. Not too surprising. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So there's this there's a free rider problem that's kind of inherent to to public goods. There's also uh, you you know you have an article out. I, I read the original, at least the bits of it that weren't too technical that you wrote. I think in the 1990s about dominant insurance contracts, where you you say, look. We can break down the problem with public goods into a preference revelation and contribution problems. What are those? How do those relate to the free rider issue? Right. So there are some um, public goods where it's obvious uh, how much we want. You know, we just want to deflect the asteroid. That's it. It's not a question of deflecting it, you know, 1%, 2%. Two gradations, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, right. <you> know. <laughs> I only want to deflect uh, half of it, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if we want to build a bridge, it'll be pretty obvious, you know, how big the bridge has to be. We can measure the amount of traffic and, and, and so forth. Or we want to have a lighthouse. We know pretty much how tall it has to be and, and how powerful the light. So we don't have to worry. So in this case, in the case of the asteroid and the lighthouse and the bridge, it's really a question of getting people to pay. It's not a question of figuring out what we actually want, of how much of the good we actually want. Mm. But there are other public goods, such as, um, you know, charity, for example, welfare payments, Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, if I give a poor person some money, and we both care about the person, right? Um, you benefit as well, uh, and therefore you have an incentive to free ride. But here, it's not entirely obvious, you know, how much of the public good uh, we want. Or suppose we think education is a public good, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, how much of it do we actually want? Uh, it, it's not. It, it's not quite so obvious. So there's a more also. Uh, a preference re- revelation problem. Uh, we have to figure out uh, exactly what quantity to produce, and that depends upon people's preferences. So I might be willing, you know, to pay a a thousand dollars per pupil for uh, a public school education, but my neighbor might be willing to pay two thousand, maybe because they actually have a kid, whereas I don't, and just want to feel like I'm contributing contributing to the common wheel. Therefore, but. We have different preferences on how what's the optimal level of of spending. Exactly, yeah. exactly right. Um, and so the dominant assurance contract, which I guess we'll get to in a minute, this solves the contribution problem, does not solve the preference revelation uh, problem. So this is a particular mechanism which is very good for producing lighthouses or bridges or other collective action goods of that type, but doesn't solve everything. So before we get to the dominant part of this, how about we start with the assurance contract part, which I think is a little older in the 80s. I think I saw that assurance contracts were kind of proposed um, by uh, other other economists. Um, And my understanding after reading that is that assurance contracts are 
basically Kickstarter or crowdfunding. It, so it, what 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 is that in more technical economic terms? And how, did did this surprise everyone? I mean, I also get the impression that no one in the 80s could have imagined Kickstarter. I mean, they imagined the concept, but how that would actually be expressed. So it, t- take us through what is an assurance contract? It, it, exactly right. So uh, Kickstarter makes this pretty familiar to everyone. Um, and that is that on Kickstarter, if you're contributing to a, uh, a good, could be a public good, you only pay if enough other people contribute so that the good can be produced. So the assurance contract or the Kickstarter contract assures you that your money won't be wasted. It will only be spent if enough other people contribute such that everybody together is enough to actually produce the good. Mm. So I'm concerned. I want to build a bridge across the river. Um, and But you know, I don't have enough to fund that just by myself. It's a very expensive thing to build a bridge. Um, but the problem is, is you don't want to start building the bridge if you're not going to end up having enough money to pay for all of it. You know, a half-built bridge isn't any good. So let's not start this until we're guaranteed to have enough funding to build the bridge. So how do we do that? We don't want to, you know, you could either, you could start the bridge and hope that you raise enough funding once people see that will work, but there's a real risk of failure. If you want to mitigate that risk, an assurance contract is a way of, we're not going to start it until everyone's agreed to raise enough. Exactly. And if you think about you as a contributor, not as a producer, but as a contributor, and you say, well, you know, they've gotten a quarter of the way. Do I really want to give them some money? Um, you, you might say, well, if they're only going to re- get halfway, then my money is just going to be wasted. Yeah. Right. So you wouldn't want to contribute uh, unless you had some uh, guarantee that uh, enough other people would contribute in order to make the bridge successful. Mm. So this is uh, I mean, and, and this this makes sense. It helps mitigate um, it helps mitigate the contribution problem, I suppose, where. Uh, it's also a, a promise. I promise to give the money, but I haven't actually given the money yet. So I'm not going to lose, you know, I'm fine with, if you will, air quotes, losing the money if it produces this this good. But the problem is if I hand over the money and the good isn't produced, I've just, it's just, a, it's a total loss. I haven't gotten the good and I've lost money. So with an assurance contract system, you have an organization like Kickstarter that says, hey, look, we will hold the money in a sense in escrow. Right. And we'll only give that money to the producer if they get to a certain level. And if they don't get there, we'll give it back to you. So it makes people more willing to contribute. There are projects that are going – there are bridges going to be built. I mean maybe not on Kickstarter. But there are, there are things that are going to be produced that wouldn't be produced otherwise because you've lessened people's anxiety about contributing to an uncertain project. Exactly. And it turns out, you know, Kickstarter um, has been remarkably successful and more successful, I think, as as you pointed out, than people would have expected when they were just talking about these ideas uh, in theory. Mm. Um, it has people have given billions of dollars um, to various kind of Kickstarter projects. And of mm. course, there are many other uh, similar sites other than Kickstarter. Um, so it's been very successful. But it's still the case that most projects on Kickstarter fail. Hmm. Most do not reach the critical level at which the money is dispersed. So on most projects, you 
uh, agree to give the money and your money is returned to you because not enough other people uh, agree. Mm-hmm. So why is that? What's the... Well, I think there could be a variety of reasons. Um, first, there still is a reason not to give. Uh, that is, you hope that if you might want to see the Veronica Mars movie, but you say, well, if I don't contribute it and other people do, it's still going to be produced and I'll still be able to see it you know, without having to pay my contribution. So there's still an incentive to free ride. The Kickstarter contract reduces the fear of wasting your money, but it does not eliminate the incentive to free ride on others. And that's where my contribution comes in. So let's talk about the dominant part of dominant assurance contracts. How does this, you know, um, mitigate even more of the free rider problem? What I proposed, this was well before Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, it was like ni- uh, mid-90s, something like that? Yeah, I think it was 89. 89, even. I can't, oh, even earlier. I, I, can't, I can't even remember. That might, <laughs> might be wrong. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. You were young, young whippersnapper. At that yes. Time. Yeah, all right. <laughs> um, so what I proposed was a very simple – a modification of what we would now call the Kickstarter contract. Okay. And the simple modification is this. If the contract fails to reach critical mass, if not enough people, uh, in fact, uh, contribute towards producing the Veronica Mars movie or whatever it may be, the entrepreneur in charge will give to each of the people who promised that they would give, they give them a refund plus a bonus. Mm. So it's like a refund bonus. Hmm. So now think about this contract from the point of view of you as a potential contributor. Mm -hmm. Um, If you give money and the contract is successful, a lot of other people contribute, well, that's good for you because the good is actually produced. And we can assume that the value to you of the good is greater than your contribution. So you are on net better off. Uh, On the other hand, you say to yourself, well, if I contribute and others fail to contribute, I'm also better off. Mm, It's a win-win. It's a win-win. Exactly right. That's why it's called a dominant assurance contract because the dominant strategy is to contribute no matter what other people do. So whatever, you don't care now what other people do. You just say, well, it's a win-win. I can't lose. Therefore, I contribute. So this makes uh, it possible to produce public goods. It eliminates the free rider, eliminates most of the free rider problem. Um, And it means that people now want to contribute. And uh, uh, it greatly enhances the ability of Kickstarter-like contracts to produce public goods. Do we have any real-world examples, real-world examples of dominant assurance contracts? Interestingly, some uh, colleagues uh, and I have recently been running uh, lab experiments. So this is an economic experiments, mm. and what we do in these um, experiments is we put people into a uh, Kickstarter-like uh, situation where they have the uh, the ability to contribute to a variety of uh, uh, public uh, projects. And 
some in some cases we give them the uh, a dominant insurance contract. We tell them there's going to be refund bonuses if you contribute to this project, mm. and in other cases not. Mm -hmm. And so what we compare and what we find in our experiments is that in a variety of circumstances, the refund bonuses double the probability that the contracts are uh, successful. And in fact, we, it's, it's enough of a gain so that these contracts can be self-funding. So an entrepreneur, it's true that it's not 100%, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So an entrepreneur does take some risk because there will be some circumstances where even with the refund bonus, the contract fails and then the entrepreneur has to pay out the refund bonuses. Mm -hmm. However, the number of contracts that succeed is so much larger using the refund bonus system that overall entrepreneurs have enough profits so that they're more than willing to pay refund bonuses in the minority of cases where they have to. So how, how about we, we talk about what the blockchain adds to the dominant insurance contract? So in a sense, we're layering on an additional uh, innovation here. What, how does the blockchain strengthen to p the potential willingness of people to uh, contribute to a dominant insurance contract? Right. So uh, what makes this particularly uh, amenable uh, to the blockchain or to, is smart contracts, is that all of this can be done in code. So as you pointed out, uh, Kickstarter is really acting as an escrow uh, agent. Mm -hmm. They are uh, collecting the funds and only releasing them to the entrepreneur if a certain uh, total has been reached. Well, you can easily code that um, and put that in a smart contract. And similarly for um, the payment, the refund bonuses, if enough um, has not uh, been, if the critical mass has not been reached. So all of this can be put in code, put in the blockchain, put on Ethereum. Once you do that, you don't even have to worry that the entrepreneur is going to rip you off because all of the code is open source, it's, it's viewable. And so this provides a, a super strong, credible argument that the code actually will be executed in exactly the way which the code describes. So you can automate these things and that would be great. So uh, another question here. So a lot of this framing, it's easy to see the value from a libertarian perspective of converting public goods, of, of providing public goods via private means, reducing the role of the state in building infrastructure. Like there's kind of a prima facie appeal to libertarian audiences there. What's the best non-libertarian argument you can think of for wanting to reduce the number of public goods provided by the state through dominant insurance contracts? Yeah, so I, I think the best uh, argument there is the one I alluded to is that there could be very many public goods which the state simply fails uh, to provide. Uh, asteroid deflection being one example of that that I gave earlier. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the state just isn't, isn't very good, <laughs> you know, um, at doing a lot of things. And if you look at what the state does do, most of it is not providing public goods. Mm -hmm. Most of what the state does is, is not addressing market failure. Um, and so the state, although it is conceptually capable of producing public goods and addressing market failures, 
in actual point of fact, it's the incentive structure doesn't really promote those activities uh, in an especially powerful way. So if we could instead have public goods provided by entrepreneurs, and if you could get capitalism to produce public goods, which in the traditional context doesn't make any sense at all, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because you think, oh, public goods mean market failure. Uh, but with a dominant assurance contract, public goods are not necessarily market failures. Public goods could be provided by markets, certainly more than they are today. So if we could have public goods provided by entrepreneurs in a capitalist, highly incentivized system, we might actually have a lot more of them uh, provided, particularly local public goods. As you pointed out in your introduction, this is kind of a social technology which helps us cooperate. So uh, this is simply a way of making it easier, lowering the transactions costs, increasing the incentives to act in a cooperative manner. And don't we all want more cooperation? So uh, this is a tool, a technology to increase cooperation. Maybe we're thinking during the conversation about dominant assurance contracts, how is this technology? And that's where it's important that we realize that technologies are just recipes of knowledge, just as devising a better widget that you can make cheaper and that works just as effectively makes us all better off. Coming up with ideas, the person who imagined that there could be a better widget, that itself is the recipe of knowledge that produces certain outcomes that produces a tangible outcome but the idea comes first processes come before manufacturing ideas come before new physical technologies and often through a confluence of factors these recipes of knowledge unlock immense knock-on gains with broad positive social and economic consequences I think it's important that we talk about these ideas, that we don't just focus on startups producing tangible products in the next couple of years. That's an important part of tech. But what's also important is this conceptualization process. These abstract ideas, it trains us to stretch our imagination to think about what might be possible. It's kind of a forecasting exercise. It's a muscle. It's a thing that we work at, that we improve, that we strengthen. It's an intellectual muscle that if we strengthen it, we can have a real advantage when it comes to being part of an innovative future ourselves. It helps us conceptualize which new ideas could succeed and which ones won't and what has the real potential to transform our human future for the better. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.